1: I'm sure you can tell by the way that I talk that I am Petra Spatzelibus and this is Coppola Connections where week by week we're shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to answer the ultimate question Are they the greatest film family of all time? Last week we looked at Talia Shire This week we're looking at her then husband David Shire and his contribution to the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever I'm joined on this episode by Catherine Lowe who in the time from recording this to this being released has announced that she has a podcast coming out very soon called Do You Want Me? which she is doing with the amazing Rich Nelson of the Betamax Video Club where they are looking at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film history I'm sure just by listening to that you're just like me and you can't wait to hear it so definitely keep an eye out for when that podcast drops as always, if you want some bonus chat, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Pod, where you can get all things Nicholas Cage and me and Catherine had an amazing chat about Nick Cage. I've recently as well updated some of the tiers on Patreon. I'm now offering a tea towel and an art print for every $5 donors. Come on, what other podcasts are offering that? As is always the case, now is your spoiler warning. We will go through every single dance in this film. The cha-cha, the boogie-woogie, the wiggle-wiggle, all of the dance moves will be discussed. So if you haven't seen this film, duck out now. You can always have a look in the show notes. We can find a handy document that will tell you if and where this film is streaming. So whether you're a brother or a mother, there's only one thing left to do, and that's to make some couple of Connections. On this episode, we go back to 1977, a year after last week's film, Rocky. So let's clock off work, get on our dancing shoes, get a little bit of speed, round up your mates. It's Saturday night and we're going to head to the 2001 disco as we discuss Saturday Night Fever. Sprinkled in between the BGS and disco classics is David Shire's music which makes our Coppola connection for this week. When it comes to dancing, it's always best to have a partner. So to join me and talk about how this film has aged, where has John Travolta's hair gone, and all things disco, is Katrin Lowe. How are you, Katrin?
2: I'm very well, thank you, Petros. How are you?
1: I'm Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about Saturday Night Fever. I'm kind of like, it's, I've got a weird and wonderful history with it that it wasn't until this year that i saw the uh <laughs> i saw the actual cut because this film in like i think it's 1979 got a kind of like tv cut and that's that's all i knew about it like what's what's your relationship with this film
2: well my mother rented the cut version for me when i think i would have been about 11 something like that Mm -hmm. and I had absolutely no knowledge of the film I'd heard the title before but I was you know born just a bit too late to kind of be aware of all this insane hype that surrounded it and everything and I can remember putting on the video and immediately becoming totally obsessed with that opening I thought that the Music was fantastic. I thought John Travolta looked amazing with his can of paint. I even like got my tape recorder and I put it really close to the TVs, <laughs> to so try and record the song "Staying Alive." And then I tried to record "Night Fever" as well in the bit where he's getting ready. And then I think a couple, a few years would have gone by, and then I think it would have been in the mid '90s. I think on BBC Two, they did uh, they put on a showing of the uncut version. And I can remember it had a kind of rapturous introduction by, I think, Mark Cousins. Mm-hmm. And I can remember him sort of quoting Madonna's Into the Groove and things like that in the, in the introduction to try and sort of get across that sort of feeling of the escape that you feel when you go to the disco. And, and then that was when I saw the uncut version and it was just such a different, different thing altogether from the cut version. I just couldn't, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute how a different kind of feeling it gives you but it, at that time it would have been the mid-90s and it sort of fitted in quite well with what was coming out in popular culture then like mm. you had films like Shallow Grave and *Train Spotting*, and actually Saturday Night Fever when you look at in the context of that it feels sort of quite influential like i was even thinking the other day about how the opening of train spotting and him running down the road in edinburgh to lust for life almost feels like a little bit of a nod to that opening mm. in saturday night fever it's kind of like the opening of saturday night fever gone horribly wrong <laughs> um,
1: well yeah so, it's it's so, kind of yeah. it's that opening um, on harder drugs right Is yes exactly.
2: Like... <laughs> exactly yeah completely so um so yeah but i do think I
1: do think it's quite a masterpiece. Uh, Amazing. Well, you saying about the influence on kind of 90s cinema in in weird preparation. I'd kind of always wanted to watch it, but I put on Summer of Sam last last night to watch that and a film that's set in nineteen seventy seven. And there's these kind of weird parallels between them because obviously, like, it is about like kids going to the disco, but a very different backdrop to because obviously it's all about the kind of uh, son of Sam killer and stuff like that but you kind of see yeah you kind of see the the shadow of Saturday Night Fever uh, uh, yeah. on that film e- even down to like there's weird things when I started thinking think about it's it like there's lots of shots of like John Leguizamo like in his pants just in his apartment and it's like is this a direct reference to the kind of somewhat notorious moment uh, of John Travolta and that kind of shot you get from underneath that I know at the at the time in 1977 kind of caused a lot of uproar from people going like I can't believe you've you've put in like what, what's essentially a knob shot in this <laughs> film.
2: Yeah, I think um I I read John Baden saying that that yeah that that he got quite a, a hard time from critics about that shot. And I and he was saying that it was actually just that kind of you, for once you see a man that's being objectified, you know, rather than rather than a woman, yeah. And it's it's his body that's being sort of admired by the camera, (laughs) and you and people were just so used to it being the opposite sex, you know, and that felt really shocking.
1: Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're going to be talking about a lot of the music in this, and obviously we can't. Can't talk about Saturday Night Fever without mentioning the Bee Gees, but some of the songs on this and which obviously links this to the Coppola family is David Shire. But with the wider Coppola family, when did you become aware of them as this kind of film family entity crime family that they are?
2: Well, I was quite a big fan of Marlon Brando growing up. I used to watch Guys and Dolls a lot and I saw Streetcar named Desire a few times as well. And I think just by finding out a little bit about him, I was aware of the Godfather and how much that had been kind of significant in solidifying his kind of legendary status as an actor. But I'd probably say that apart from this film that we're talking about tonight, the film connected to the Coppola family that had the biggest impression on me was Lost in Translation, which I went to see a few times at the cinema when I was a student. And yeah, and it felt really refreshing as a a film. At the time, there was something about, it was very kind of European influenced and had a lot of space in it in a way that was such a contrast to all the films that kind of were around, you know, things like sort of the American Pie franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah there was a lot of very kind of loud colorful films that were that were kind of doing doing the rounds at the be, at the beginning of the noughties and there was something about lost in translation that felt very different that i really liked so yeah uh,
1: amazing so do you, yeah what would have been the first kind of Coppola family film that you you would have you would have seen
2: um well i suppose does david if david shire qualifies
1: yeah, who can go with David Shire? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And it's I suppose it's probably this one. <laughs> it's probably. Amazing. I know, I know. Like I I s I didn't um I didn't see the god the Godfather films until after that and I didn't and I didn't see Rocky either until after I'd seen Saturn Yeah, this would have been this probably would have been my earliest. Well,
1: yeah, it's it's very it's very weird when like obviously you talk about like this and Rocky and the fact that like they're a year apart and I I don't in a way I don't think you have this without Rocky because I think like that film really gave Hollywood the chance to kind of give people a chance to show these like more grittier stories obviously this kind of takes it to a far more darker place than Rocky goes to but like and obviously this is like this film kind of wouldn't be what it is without the steady cap. And it's like Rocky was like one of the first films to ever use that. And um Yeah, it's it's just a, it's just it's just a it's just a fascinating one. And obviously, uh the yeah, the biggest link between those two films, obviously David and Talia Shire at the time were married. So shall we yeah. talk shall we talk about Saturday Night Fever? This is the landmark film that made Oscar nominee John Travolta a superstar on the dance floor. Hey, Tony, you know something? You're the king out there. You're great. Great dancers. You could do as good as me if you practice. Okay, Liz, I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together and uh, nothing more, nothing personal. With help from a beautiful dance partner, he's on a quest to be the best and escape the violent streets of New York.
0: What a handsome face, huh? Oh, I cut myself shaving.
2: With a switchblade,
0: huh? Are you going to do something with your dancing? I don't, I don't know. People ask me all the time. Tony, the only way you're going to survive is to do what you think is right.
2: Now we have Stephanie Mangano and Tony Manero.
0: <laughs> we live the music of an
1: entire generation with John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Could you? perhaps give us like a brief synopsis of what this film is about
2: well i suppose this film is about nightlife Mm -hmm. and about how this uh young man called tony monero is finding solace in going out on a saturday night with his friends and getting away from his kind of uh slightly oppressive job In a paint shop uh, where he's got a lovely boss but he's just very aware of the fact that he might have this job for the rest of his life and he doesn't know that's what he wants to do. Uh, He is being brought up in um, a Catholic household where uh, he has a brother that is um, currently away and he's joined the priesthood and his parents are very approving of that. They're very disapproving of Tony's uh, recreational activities outside the household, and their, I suppose the culture in which he's being raised is very traditional. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are certain expectations for Tony's life, and he he's not sure that those expectations are the things that match up with what he wants. Yeah, there's a
1: there's a really like significant moment in the opening, and John Badham talks about this on the commentary that. So. He wanted to show, because see it's like that shot of the Brooklyn Bridge before we kind of get to Travolta strutting down the street, is he just wanted to show how close somewhere like Brooklyn and Manhattan is. And I kind of like this film very much is about crossing that bridge right to 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 make it to the other side. Now, even if you don't know what that is and kind of like you go on, Tony's journey and I don't know. I guess because I don't have I I hadn't seen this film when I was younger. I'm kind of gonna lay my cards out on the table quite early. I'm not sure how I feel about this film because I'm not sure if it is the is the film that I kind of like expected it to be. Do you know what I mean? Like I kind of like you kind of get sold on this idea that it's going to be this like it's a film about the disco era and <laughs> like and then like you kind of get introduced to Tony Monero and his kind of gang of goons who who are, f- are fucking assholes basically. Yeah. What what do you what, what are your kind of yeah what do you think of the character of Tony?
2: Well, I think I think that he's an interesting he's an interesting sort of like you have the machismo that Mm -hmm. is sort of identified in a film like Rocky, but then it's all subverted because they explore that version of Tony through disco dancing and sort of self beautification. And both of those things are usually associated either with women or, or in a sort of homosexual context Mm -hmm. in terms of what we expect in film. And he, is you know he's sort of showing us this incredibly kind of raw aggressive quite vulnerable um version of masculinity that's you know very rude and amazingly just sort of open to everything that's happening to him incredibly impulsive and there is something interesting about him, though, because if you if you watch it a few times, mm-hmm. you start to notice actually that that Tony doesn't actually have very much sex in the film. Yeah, and you you think you kind of have a, you've sort of pinned that on him quite early on, I think, where you kind of think, oh yeah, well he's just after X Y Z, and then you notice when you watch it again, you kind of think, actually, he he turns down quite a lot of sex, and he and he he they even have that sort of moment where the girl, where the really gorgeous girl is saying to him, are you as good on, on the dance floor as you are in bed? Yeah. And he kind of tells her to fuck off, you know, he sort of tries to dance with her and he says, well, if you know, you're a lousy dancer, it probably means that you're a lousy fuck. <laughs> and yeah, and then he sort of pushes her off the dance floor and then he dances to, you should be dancing. And it's the most amazing sequence, but it's also quite sort of narcissistic and it's sort of just the ultimate clearing the dance floor. Here I am. I am amazing. And I'm actually sort of more interested in the perfection of my own performance than I am in, like, getting a bit of skirt tonight. So he's sort of this mass of contradictions.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things I have a problem with is, like, if you kind of weigh it up on the scale of the things he does throughout the film, it's kind of like you see, you see him more being, like, a dick to people and kind of like through his kind of narcissism and arrogance kind of like doesn't see that the people around him are are crying out for help especially like when you look at the character of bobby and the way he treats like annette throughout this film and even like the way he treats stephanie that it's like kind of by the end of the film We'll, we'll obviously get into that a bit later, but I'm not sure. Like I'm like the way you've treated people, Tony. Are we supposed to? Are we supposed to at the end go? Oh, all right, mate. Like you've you've had a bit of a t- you've had a bit of a tough one. Well, I hope it all works out for you. Is it like you've kind of made your sordid bed? It's time yeah. to strip down to your pants and lay in it because like, and it's it's that thing. I know that not every tale has to be one of good and bad or there is obviously the gray in people and it doesn't have to be some kind of redemptive story but it kind of does in a weird way play out like that and it's it's just i guess there is that kind of weird juxtaposition that it kind of plays off against that thing of trying to have its double stacked slices of pizza and eat it. <laughs> in, in that it kind of tries to like be like this hey, like, let's all have fun dancing movie. And then it's kind of, like, sandwiched with this, like, really quite nihilistic film about, like, feeling trapped and living in, like, a dead end. I don't know. It kind of, like, I guess it's the fact, like, if it was about yeah, anything out of it, it's just the weird juxtaposition with it. And I guess, like, for people in Brooklyn at the time that would have been a very common story right like people would have been like they they their only their only release would have probably been like the discos on the weekend and kind of like getting out their demons on the dance floor I just I, I don't know it, it and it, it's that thing that it kind of it seems that every film in the 70s and like rewatching Rocky recently you just realize oh Every film's kind of really bleak in the 70s.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do think that these films require us to be grown-ups mm-hmm. in a way that that films maybe um, do more rarely now. Mm-hmm. Like, it expects you to have a level of, of kind of, you know, existential awareness that yeah. it can be quite difficult to summon the the energy for sometimes like i i think it's a i think it's a, a an incredible piece of work this film but i do not watch it very often because i find it so profoundly upsetting mm-hmm. it yeah. leaves me with a feeling of just you know oh my god i'm so, i feel so i feel so disturbed by this film and i think that i mean you're completely right about the how the 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 feeling of disco in it totally wrong foots you but i think mm-hmm. that. Good in the sense that nightclubs do exist in grim areas, like yeah. you know we've all we've all been to to nightclubs and you go in and you might have a bit of a scary incident. I think it's quite a universal feeling for people that have kind of you know indulged in a bit of nightlife in their in their time, which most of us have, and so that idea of there being a club where you hear really exhilarating wonderful pop music and then you go home. And you're miserable, I don't think is is something that shouldn't be represented yeah, yeah. in a film. That's quite that's quite real. But also I think that your your point about how unsympathetic Tony's character is, is a really good one. And I think that's sort of why I do think when I'm watching this film that if you take John Travolta out of it and you put someone who's got less of a sort of nuanced Mm-hmm. so i mean he's a very he's a very difficult actor to sort of sum up isn't he it's like but there's something about his incredible sort of the, the vulnerability that that lies in his face is absolutely vital to this film working because i think if you put anyone who's a, a bit more of a kind of crude actor in that role it just doesn't work as does well oh.
1: <laughs> oh yeah if, if this was like harvey keitel it would be <laughs> like uh, there's there's no redeeming like there's more that like he's beyond the pale of like redemption whereas like yeah. you kind of get like the idea and i guess it does come through in like john travolta's uh performance he's like he's a bit of a dummy like he's he yeah. kind of like he, there's a line he delivers quite early on when he's at the dinner table with his family and he just says like he hits my hair and it's like that that grammatically as a as a sentence, like in in the context of how he says it, just doesn't really make sense. And just kind of like, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's just kind of like he just seems like a bit of a doofus. And like that is, yes. and like his like kind of interactions with with Stephanie and stuff like that. And she's kind of like it is that. And yeah, it's reference in the film is this kind of there is these undertones of like a a Romeo and Juliet story of like her kind of she's. She's on her way to going over the bridge into Manhattan and he's very much still rough and ready living in Brooklyn. But before we get too deep into talking about the kind of um the the more grim stuff in this, let's talk about how glorious that opening is, right? Like when uh it's great, right? You kind of that I think that's the thing. When you when you first watch this film, you get that opening, you're like, right. I'm up. I'm ready to go. Like this is this is going to be just like pumping disco tunes. A guy just having like walking down the street. I'd I'd never I'd never thought about stacking two slices of pizza before. But since watching this film, I'm like I want to do that. And it kind of I don't know. You think you're in for a lot of fun in that opening? Um, well, yeah. No, you no, make? you really do. <laughs> what,
2: what,
1: what uh, do you, I'm sorry. Do <laughs> no, what do you make of that opening?
2: I, well, as I say, I was just absolutely transfixed mm. by it. And I didn't, I wasn't prepared for it. it. You know, that's the thing. I I can tell you that it, it wasn't me responding to hype in any way. Yeah. Like I saw that as, you know, as a young person, completely just fresh. And I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. And it's really weird because all it is, is him kind of having got, been sent to another paint shop to get a can of paint. And it's just him walking down the street. And you're like, why is this? so incredible and it's the combination of him and the music like yeah. you take you take one away and it doesn't but apparently when they were filming it they were just they were having a real problem with Filming all of these scenes I'm sure you will have read about this as well with kind of just there being hordes of yeah. John Travolta fans screaming on the sidelines and I had I read some kind of quote from him where they sort of said to him how are you so confident in that first <laughs> scene like, where do you get that he was just like when you've got thousands of girls screaming at you from the sidelines it's quite easy to walk in a confident way it's, it's,
1: and they actually had the demos for staying alive like they had a demo playing on set, so they could, so he could obviously keep in rhythm and like yes. the people on. And you kind of like you see it with the people on the street, they're kind of like almost everyone's in weird time to the music and it's kind of like interactions with with people. And, this and in that kind of first couple of minutes as well, you get two of John Travolta's family members uh, on screen, so his sister. Is the woman who's working in the pizza place and the woman he's kept waiting as he goes to get that tin of paint is John Travolta's mum?
2: Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And, I, <laughs> and I, I hear that that you know they they sent a limo for her and stuff and like really gave her the five star treatment because they really wanted to be incredibly nice to John Travolta's mum. And there's something there's something wonderful about knowing all of that when you when you're watching that opening. It's yeah. funny, when he when he orders the two pieces of pizza, the, another, another film that I really like is Point Break.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's a bit in Point Break that I really like for some reason where Gary Boosie asks Keanu Reeves to get him two meatball subs and he just yells out the car, get me two, Utah, get me two. And I've always <laughs> thought, I wonder whether <laughs> that's a little nod to that bit with the two pieces of pizza. I'd like to think that it was. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's it's a good lesson, isn't it? The opening of Saturday Night Fever and how just doing something very simple, just getting the right music and then getting people to film it to the music and make sure that you're in time and getting the right performer and the and the costume and everything just can work really brilliantly.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's that the the thing of like I t- you kind of like it's synonymous, right? That opening is kind of like if you. If you feel like you're str- like if you, if you kind of put on good music in your headphones and like kind of have confidence as you walk down the street, it's kind of the thing that will spring to most people's minds. Like this film is kind of it's part of our everyday lexicon and what we kind of talk about. It's like if you if you kind of do that dance where you, you it's very hard to explain on a podcast, but like you do the the finger point up and down. It's like, yeah, this, like known as like the Saturday Night Fever dance. It's like, but yeah, I, there's so many times you, I just think to myself, like, oh, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling confident, I've, I'm listening to my favorite music, I feel like John Travolta right now. <laughs> like, and I, I've, I've kind of, that's kind of been a touch point in my mind. And I imagine for a lot of people from an early age, and I, I imagine for people who have never even seen this film, I guess that's kind of like hardwire ingrained into like, I don't know, just just what, like when they, yeah, when they kind of have that feeling of confidence. So like, yeah, I feel like John Travolta at the beginning of Saturday Night <laughs> of Well, that's
2: why it's quite, it's 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 quite a difficult film, isn't it, to kind of evaluate in some mm. sense, because on the one hand, one can have a kind of uh, reaction to the narrative and the characters that are portrayed. But on the other hand, you're just so highly aware of its influence mm. in, in terms of popular culture in a way that's kind of extra you know for, for what would have probably been quite a low budget film that by the sounds of it was sort of done in quite a rush it's just extraordinary how it how the ripples of it still sort of flow through everything, in, including as you say, just the way you might think of it like that the opening scene kind of preempts a time when people you know now it's so easy for us to you know, on on our phones listen to, to music and kind of create our own soundtracks when we're mm-hmm. going going about our days in a way that it, it wasn't sort of quite quite so easy back then, like in the eighties, eighties, nineties, I would have had like a sort of chunky tape walk. <laughs> um be tried to do it that way and we've come on in leaps and bounds since then. But yeah, it's 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 sort of it sort of anticipates that, doesn't it? That opening?
1: Yeah, de- definitely. And there's like I don't know you you very quickly learn in this film because you do you, you have that opening where it's quite bombastic and kind of brimming with confidence and you kind of think you're going to get this like fun film but then like that interaction he has with his boss uh, dan fusco the 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 paint shop owner where like he's kind of asking about the future and tony delivers that line where he's like oh, fuck the future and it's his boss's like retort where it's like, it's kind of like the mission statement for the film. It's like, you can't fuck the future. The future fucks you. And it's like, yeah. w- once you hear that line, it's like, okay. I'm, 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 I'm like, I like, I get the tone of this film completely. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and- it's it's an interesting thing why I have, I have tried to understand why it is that when when music is used in a film, it wires your brain for something. And so if something terrible happens in the film, mm. it, yeah, it just, it like kind of pulls the rug out from underneath you in a way that it wouldn't do if you were watching a Scorsese film that kind of just felt from the get-go, like you knew what you were dealing with. Yeah. Um,
1: well, and, it, and it's very weird as well, because obviously like, I don't know why I had... Well, Especially for for myself, and I, I I guess I guess other people would probably have this idea of what they think Saturday Night Fever is, but it's similar to Martin Scorsese's film because it's like that's littered with like needle drops from like pop songs, whether it's like Mean Streets who kind of like Be My Baby and stuff like that. It's like yeah. they are they are all like great kind of get up and dance fun pop songs, yeah. yet like you kind of. I don't know, you kind of, when you think of Saturday Night Fever, you, like, if you haven't seen it, or just, like, if you'd only ever seen that kind of uh, disco cut, you you would have thought, like, oh, yeah, it's just fun, fun, like, disco movie, not like it kind of deals with some of the really existential questions, really, like, serious topics that kind of
2: like, like, like the, um, the white the white suit for instance mm-hmm. like that image that we all have of him wearing the white suit doing the the pointy dance like i always forget whenever i revisit the film i always forget that at the, the point where he's wearing that and he's in the dance competition he's his face is completely beaten up and he's got you know he's he sort of doesn't doesn't look very good you know he looks knackered and he looks kind of depressed and and it's funny how in the marketing of the film there was something where they kind of took took that image and they the, the 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 iconography of the film is so powerful that it actually even if you've seen it a few times, each time you watch it again you go, Oh, oh, I really forgot that this was so <laughs> yeah, yeah. dark. You know? Yeah,
1: I'm actually looking at the DVD cover right now and it's it's got that like that image and they've obviously like done it on another day where he hasn't got or like kind of done it pre or post him having the 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 makeup on for for being battered and bruised and yeah he looks he looks absolutely great he almost looks aspirational like yeah if I put on a white suit and a black shirt I'm gonna look like Travolta and it's like I'll probably look like him in the actual film like a a bit a bit battered and beaten up um but this film in yeah uh, relates to rocky in another a uh, kind of much bigger way and the fact that at one point it was going to be directed by John G Avildsen the director of rocky and i i always think like what would that film have been like i guess i guess, I, I guess it kind of would have been the film that a lot of people kind of think that saturday night Fever is on first impressions before seeing it because
2: oh yeah and tell me tell me more about that
1: well i know that he 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 stepped away because he he didn't like the the kind of stuff that um norman wexler had put in the kind of like the very gritty speech the dark places this film goes to like yeah. He was like, I kind of want to make it a bit more like aspirational. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like Rocky is is kind of bleak, but still, it's what it's a PG. It's, it's, it, the family can watch it. It's not like, like this film. The the word cunt is said a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, especially if yeah. you think like, if that was if that, that word was dropped in films like nowadays as much as in this, you, you still would probably go like, oh, that's a lot. And I can only think of like in nineteen seventy seven, like that would have been like really, really like mind blowing to people. Like I know that um, the director John Badham uh, was slated to do a job for like a big studio, and the day after this came out, was fired. It was like like they were like, oh, he's just gonna make us a vulgar film, like yeah. like, like like this is like uh, at the time. I guess like the suits and stuff like that. Thought it was, thought it was horrible. Basically, whereas like the people, the 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 the, jo- the man on the street, the kind of general public loved it. it was the the fourth biggest film of nineteen seventy seven?
2: Like, yeah, crazy. And the and the sound. I think maybe the soundtrack was released before the film as well, which I think really sort. Of
1: yeah, yeah, and what that was like the biggest selling soundtrack ever until Thriller came out. And it's like, I, 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 yeah, I imagine it's one of those things like if you go through, if you go through a car boot sale, if you go to a record fair, you're gonna see like upwards of twenty copies of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack because it's just like it's in everyone's house.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> completely. Completely, and it's and it's um. And I think they, the the Gib brothers, kind of dashed off quite a few of the songs in about a weekend, which is one of those things that is really depressing. <laughs> 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 ridiculously productive weekend, you bastards! Um, but yeah, and I think it was the uh, there were rumors. I think that it was the first film that used the term blowjob. job." Mm-hmm. That got that got a big reaction. I think yeah. That's <laughs> yeah the,
1: uh... <laughs> There's a, there's weird... a
2: bit with him talking about his pussy finger and stuff. I mean, as you say, even like now, it's not like we've become completely used to these things. You do go, oh, wow, that's that's a lot. Yeah, you know, yeah,
1: the yeah. yeah there's like, a, well, there's a weird link because <laughs> in Carrie, John Travolta's character receives a blowjob, but obviously they just never say it. Whereas like, and he's in the film, the first ever film to say it and doesn't actually yeah. get one he kind of like ends up going oh. he he brushes off a net once again um which brings us to well, before we get out to like the kind of night out scene um what what are your kind of thoughts on the the family dynamic scenes those kind of scenes we get around the dinner table
2: well i think that they're really important in terms of showing the difference in in atmosphere mm-hmm. Tony um, goes at when he comes home and I think that that thing that you're describing where we're having a bit of difficulty sympathizing with Tony in terms of some of his characteristics those family scenes are really vital in kind of helping you understand the world that he's trying to get his head around and to be in a family where if you get joy out of something, if you like going and, and dancing or whatever it is, and to be in that family and feel as if they don't value or not even value it, just even kind of get at all why you would enjoy that thing, that you know could be potentially quite stifling. And you also see that there's a pattern of kind of physical and verbal abuse going on there his father says, you know, I've, to his mum, like, I've, I don't hit you, not in front of the kids, which implies that he does hit her mm-hmm. when they're not around, and that they kind of know that. And then they also sort of, you know, you have the thing that's kind of play, played slightly for laughs in terms of him saying, you know, she hits my hair. And that is a is kind of funny line stuff, but you also sort of see how there's a bit of a kind of cyclical, cyclical thing going on at home with kind of people hitting each other and then there's also you also see why he might be attracted to Stephanie based on what's going on at home because the roles are so traditional like at one point Tony actually tries to help clear the table and his father says don't do that the girls do that you know yeah trying to keep Tony very much in a particular role and another thing you know he has a row with his mum and he's then sort of filled with kind of shame about it and says, you know, I love you. And also at the very beginning of the film, you see him interacting with his sister and he's lovely to his sister. Mm -hmm. And they have actually a really sort of like nice little interaction. And that all of that kind of sort of contributes to this feeling of Tony being a bit of a different person when he goes out, the sort of the bravado and, and some of the interactions with Annette and Stephanie, like, you know, he's not, he's not one note. He, Mm -hmm. he kind of, he keeps, he sort of keeps kind of changing, kind of like a miracle, isn't he, Tony? He's like he's sort of got all of these sort of different things that are sort of glinting out of him in different scenes.
1: Yeah, and he's he's definitely he's definitely not the worst of his friends. I think it's just that thing that he has that expectation because he's very much like the leader of the pack. So like, I don't know, like, and obviously we're seeing it through the prism of tony's life like where it's like i imagine like if you kind of like saw like what joey gets up to when he's not on, like when when he's not like on camera like it's probably far worse like he's kind of like he's the one like pulling out speed at the club and stuff like that and like i don't know there are some yeah there's obviously like some almost unforgivable things that that Tony does or kind of like, he's very much like, or doesn't do in some cases, but then like his friends are are arguably far worse.
2: Oh, 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 absolutely. I mean, one, t- t- Tony is, is incredibly rude, but sometimes actually his actions, as you say, are are better than his fr- You know, he, like he's very, he treats Annette really badly but on the other hand, he isn't opting to use Annette for sex
1: mm-hmm.
2: and at the at the point where Annette sort of triggers him and sort of makes him jealous and he does and he does get into the car with Annette, he does ask her you know are are you fixed are you on are you on protection you know and and i'm not I'm not saying and you know what a what a round of applause we should give him for that or anything but I just mean that unlike his friends he's you know he doesn't he doesn't want to he doesn't want to he doesn't want to get her pregnant and he doesn't want her to be pregnant. And then at the end of, of the film, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure he, he does, he does make an attempt to kind of keep her from doing anything stupid with the rest of the guys. Yeah. As I say, none of these things are, they're just better. They're just better than his friends rather than anything in itself that should be regarded as being wonderful qualities. But as you say, yeah, he, he is, there is something about him that feels more thoughtful.
1: Than oh, the, yeah, he's he's very much like a an edible apple in a batch of rotten ones. Do you know? and <laughs> yeah. you know, like there's there's not so many like brown marks. Do you know what I mean, you can kind of eat around it, whereas like the other ones, it's like he even like I think there's a certain line, like uh, the character, yeah, Bobby. Like when when they go to the bridge and kind of trick a net that they've like jumped off. Like, like oh. the the camera lingers on Bobby, and he just like says like, "You stupid bitch," and it's just got this like, I don't know, it's like this thing of like, oh fucking like, give her a, give her a break. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, like, I know, I yeah. know. And because Donna Poo, Pus- uh, yeah, Donna Pusco has has a net. She's like, she's she's like. The character's lovely, and she's kind of like she's very up front, she's very bullshy. She kind of like she stands up to them at least, like especially especially at the start, like when when like kind of going over to the table, like when they're all yeah, when they're all at the club and stuff like that. And she's kind of like giving as good as she gets, but there's
2: I don't know, there's there's this yeah, beat- she says if you want a dream girl, then go to sleep and have a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's she's.
1: She knows what she wants, but at the same time, you could tell like she's just a bit browbeaten by by being like, I guess this is kind of like a weekly thing. She's probably be like we're just getting a snapshot into their lives, but like she's probably been ch- like chasing tony for for a while, and there's there's definitely that idea that there's some kind of backstory that we we're, we're, we're not privy to, and we don't, we don't really need, but there's definitely a history between those two.
2: No oh, completely completely and I think you know there's 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 so much of of Annette and the kind of feeling of vulnerability to her that I think I, I can certainly relate to I'm, sh- I'm sure we all can it's that thing of being at a certain moment in life and you just have have like a massive crush on someone and they won't you know you, you can tell that it's sort of not coming back at you in the way that you want it to and you get kind of you know you get kind of a bit fixated and and that thing that she does where she her her way of kind of getting him to to give in to her is by sort of triggering his jealousy by saying that she's going to get with one of his friends I think it's something that you know Yeah. yeah happens all the time and it's very it's very sort of relatable where someone just is feeling like they're really into someone and they're and they're quite and they're quite desperate about it and but I think the reason why we we like her so much is because she's one of the, like everyone in the film, so many people are kind of agonising about themselves and what they want to do with their lives or how they're being perceived. Mm-hmm. Whereas Annette is, you know, you can tell that she's in love with someone else, you know, and that her, what's sort of driving her isn't just sort of like how she's seeing herself. It's, it's her love for him, it's her love for Tony and... So there's something about her that feels like a very sort of human human spirit in this quite cold environment. And I think that's what sort of makes us all sort of feel for her a lot, isn't
1: it? Yeah, because to your point of something you said earlier about, like, when Tony asked, her, is she on any form of contraception? It's like, I kind of read, read, read that as, like, it's a very selfish, like, he, he's asking selfishly, do you know what I mean? He's kind, yeah. of going, yeah. he's kind of definitely thinking, like, oh, Annette's out to trap me. Do you know what I mean? And like, whereas yeah. like, he's not asking for like her. Do you know what I mean? For her benefit or anything like that.
2: No, oh, no, no, no. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Um. So let's talk about the two thousand and one. Um. Does that look like somewhere that you would very much like to go and have a dance?
2: <laughs> well, I can see how if you were living that life, how that would be somewhere. <laughs> where you would want to get it's so it's so interesting like when it's another thing where when when you're kind of watching it back you notice things like you it it sort of looks more and more tatty the more the more you look at it like I think that they actually sort of in the background you can sort of see all of these kind of shiny things that are reflecting the light and then it turns out I think they were all just um sort of like big sheets of Uh, tin foil that they'd hung (laughs) fairy lights in front of them to kind of you know reflect reflect the the light to kind of give it that kind of glitzy glitzy look and it has that I mean it does it does remind me as a club of like there used to be a club in the in the nearest city that I grew up um next to and it it have a did have a similar similar vibe to that Did, did you ever go to a club that had that sort of feeling to it? Yeah,
1: I've definitely been to places like that. I think I've been to like I've like a Flares or somewhere like that where they even have like that kind of. Which I guess I don't know. This this would have been the first place a lot of people will attend. This like that light up floor, which like cost <laughs> well, it's like the biggest expense on the budget. Cost like fifteen grand, and they kind of had it so it could be like. I guess it's commonplace. Like you can kind of get buy lights for like a fiver off the internet to do it, but like would, actually. Uh, perform to the music and like change and stuff like that. And um, there's a great <laughs> quote from like the disco owner because obviously like this is a real this was a real place. He saw like dailies of of what they were shooting, and obviously yeah. like like it, it must have looked mental with all that tin foil on the walls, like in the kind of the cold <laughs> light of day. Which I imagine yeah. like some of the a lot of this would have been filmed, but like. You can kind of just imagine him being like this. I don't know. I, I just picture, picture him as this kind of shyster type, and he's like, you made my place look great. Do you know what I mean? Because, <laughs> and you, you imagine for him, he's just thinking, like, business is going to go through the roof once this film go, comes out. Like, he's just, he's already counting the money. Yeah. Yeah,
2: completely. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it has that, it does con- conjure up a certain kind of atmosphere, doesn't it? That, like, they have the... Yeah, know such great scenes of and you know tony and his friends walking into it and people kind of you know the the crowd sort of parting and well, the,
1: um, all the background dancers as well they they very much looked for people who were actually looked like people who would frequent these places i know that like a lot of people who auditioned were like people working in like the chorus lines on broadway and stuff like that and um uh, john Badham's kind of said like you look too much like dancers like, yes we, we don't we don't want that we want like so the people who who wouldn't normally get the roles like who might i don't know like might, yeah might be a bit of, of, of a more weighty guy or something like that who just happens to be able to cut cut a rug like they they would they they were they were getting roles or they kind of like scouted people in the brooklyn area who were going to these clubs and could really really cut some shapes and you kind of really get that with that first night out when they do that it's almost like a line dance that they do yeah it's
2: it's
1: great right
2: it is great it's definitely one of the best scenes in the film because as you say uh it has this wonderful kind of unpolished quality to it. And it actually makes, it, it It didn't, revisiting the film this time after sort of like, you know, watching quite a few seasons of something like Strictly Come Dancing, I, I, did, I did sort of appreciate how there is something wonderful about people sort of intentionally creating art that does sort of reflect, how, you know, sort of real people attempting to do something you know that gives them kind of like this sort of feeling of escapism and how that's actually sometimes more moving than you putting on a tv program or a film where it's the people you know that are kind of that look amazing and they're dancing in the most amazing way that you could never possibly do and there's something you know about that scene of them all line dancing and they're all you know kind of they don't look over rehearsed Mm-hmm. They all look very much like people that you'd actually see in a club, and there's something about that moment. It's probably the most sort of uplifting, quietly uplifting moment in the film because it's all—it's like all of those people in that community doing something together that makes them feel good. And there's no aggression for a moment, yes. and the music's absolutely glorious. You know,
1: it's weirdly euphoric, right? It's yeah. Gr- and especially as the kind of club envelops with smoke, which was something that they like were like, "Oh, uh, that doesn't happen in clubs." And then, like after this film came out, clubs actually started getting smoke machines. So, like, yeah, kind of like one of the influence, one of the many influences. This this film, uh, no, completely.
2: Has. And um, and when you were watching Top of the Pops. When I was a child and stuff, they had so so much dry ice and things. You kind of think, yeah, they probably wouldn't have introduced all of that into so much, so much kind of light entertainment on TV if it weren't for Saturday Night Fever as well. Well, this
1: scene, I kind of have to talk about like one of possibly my my MVPs for the film, which is Denny Dillon's character, the lady who comes up to Tony uh, after he's like danced and comes over like. Tony, could c could, could I wipe your brow? And like <laughs> just the just the way she delivers, she delivers it a lot. She's like, I love to watch you dance, and she just kind yeah. of keeps saying it, and like, uh, yeah, and you kind of see that thing that like, I don't, I don't know, like he ha- he's you, you half expect him to be like mean to her as well, and he's like, you know what, like. I'm actually. I I just love dancing. If you want to dance, like yes. let let's go for it. Let's go for a dance. And it is in moments like that that you kind of like go, oh yeah, like to, like tone. Especially because his friends are all like, what bad mouthing her and just being like real real assholes. Like like when he when, yeah. he when he heads to the dance floor and yeah, then we get like yeah the the introduction of. Carolyn Gorney when he sees her like dancing dancing on the dance floor cuz the DJ again who is possibly one of my other MVPs are just there's there's something about the the DJ at that club who's just he's fantastic i love him <laughs> yeah he's <is> okay so <laughs> um but yeah what what do you think of Carolyn Gorney in this film
2: i i like her um I like her performance and and understand the character a lot more now, having revisited the film than I did when I was younger. I think I used to, all of my sympathy used to be with Annette's character, I think. And I mean, even kind of in terms of their sort of physicality, there's something about, um, this the, there's something about kind of Annette, the way she's cast, like she looks very much like how... Um, uh, a woman you see in a you know she's got arms and she's got breasts and she's you know sort of quite short and so and she's a really you know she she can dance but she looks kind of like a like a kind of you know a, a sort of a woman that you see out but then there's something about Stephanie when she's introduced as a character on the dance floor she has that kind of look about her immediately where it's kind of like this is a you know she's she's got a sort of waif-like quality to her and she's sort of dancing in a in a, in a way that's classy that might kind of intimidate you as a woman I, I sort of recognize that completely and there's something about it Stephanie's character now I have lot more sympathy for her because there's something in her name dropping and going into the city and getting this job and then feeling the need to kind of you know insert all of these details about her life about how she's now kind of drinking tea with lemon and (laughs) talking to tony about you know sort of like rubbishes his thing where he says isn't isn't Romeo and Juliet Isn't that by Shakespeare and she's like no I'm talking about Zeffirelli the film director and things you know she's being uh she's being sort of quite pedantic but on the other hand there are these little tells where she says nobody has any idea how much I'm growing and there's something really defensive about that line where you kind of think oh actually she's going through stuff as well you can Mm. sort of see how she's sort of trying to build a life for herself and there are people that she knows that kind of where she feels like they're trying to put her in a box and she's she's rebelling against that and and you know I I moved from I moved from North Wales and ended up uh, working in theatre in London and I know that when I would have seen some of my old old friends because when you're in theatre you you meet famous people because mm-hmm. of just you know, because of actors being around and stuff and you know sometimes there are these things where I see Stephanie kind of name dropping think, like, I bet I've done that yeah you know? it's yeah. like it's quite recognizable as kind of something that you try and do sometimes to try and you know like assure people that you're doing something interesting with your life or something you know and it's it's not a likable quality but I think when you get older you sort of recognize that it's quite universal some of these things
1: and, and especially the ages they are, because what Tony's nineteen, Stephanie, I does she divulge? Is she like, I, I, she's got to be early twenties, right? So like, like it's it's not it's not very like I don't know. It's not like she's she, she seems lost as well. Everyone seems lost in this film, and she seems like somebody who very much know. Well, she pinpoints exactly what Tony's life is doesn't she she says to him like oh i bet you're living at home with your parents you've got some dead-end job and the way you the way you kind of let off steam is just going out to the 2001 every weekend and tony has like an element of pride about that he's like yeah that is what i do and she's kind of gone past the rubicon on that and it's like well yeah that that's what i probably you—that's what I used to do. Is like, I guess it's that thing of like when if you speak to like an eighteen-year-old and like for them, like there's there's nothing wrong with that idea of just like yeah, I live for the weekend. I go out. Do you know what I mean I dabble in drugs? I dabble in like drinking. I I just cut yeah. loose on the weekend. Whereas like yeah, you speak to somebody like of, of even twenty-five like. Maybe a bit like it depends uh, if he's a man or a woman. Speak to a man of about 40, you'll probably get uh, the idea of like him going, Yeah, it's probably time to be serious about things. And I, 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 there's, there's a great like innocence and again, like hurt to Stephanie as a character that like she has managed to escape that world do you know what I mean she could have very much become like I don't know just just another another victim to like that that kind of lifestyle and like just had to deal with she could have ended up marrying a dickhead like one of Tony's mates essentially yes she's kind of she she's got away from it and like she's got I don't know she's got there's something more for her out there um yeah
2: completely and i think that uh she's even though she is quite brutal to him in that scene and she can be quite abrupt and rude i mean she's certainly that that, that line that she delivers to bobby c where he says would you get an abortion or would you marry me and she says who would i have to marry and he says me and she said "Oh, i get an abortion it's so incredibly it's brutal but on the other hand as you said like if if you're in that if if you're consorting with with people and you kind of know that in order to in order to kind of make a different life for yourself you're going to have to encounter certain things it's it's sort of understandable that you might be quite defensive mm-hmm. and you might sort of you know emulate kind of some of the aggression of what you've encountered around you and then you also sort of see the thing of her being quite rude to Tony in that cafe scene that cafe scene is brilliant I think uh and then but then you see that older man that she's having that living arrangement with be mm-hmm. it's such an ass to her sort of you know telling her which books to read and saying don't say super no one says super anymore and things and you kind of think oh well, she's she obviously thinks that she needs a man like that in her life to tell her what you know what is right or what's wrong so when she goes into work she knows um she looks like she knows what she's doing and I could completely relate to that as well I think where you kind of think I need someone to to guide me even if that person's sort of really talking down to me you know um so I think that yeah you can you start to understand more and more about where she's coming from don't
1: you yeah and it's that thing she's kind of like in a rock and a hard place isn't she she's kind of like not so much like Fully independent. You know I mean, fully independent enough to be able to just go out fully on her own. She's kind of had to get into this weird living situation. She's kind of like, I guess, like we're. It's that thing that we all have to make compromises and stuff like that. And it's like you see how hurt she is, like when Tony ha- helps her move, and he's he he gets like quite upset with her. He's kind of like he's very jealous about. About her living with this guy and kind of like, gets, I don't know. Well, he he's just jealous all the time, right? Like it's it's either with the kind of the guy she's seeing or she's dancing with Pete and to quote Tony, the cunt hound. Like, yeah, he, he's kind of always like flying off the handle, and I don't the, like the to talk about like the middle section of this film. It kind of like it builds it builds up with you kind of get these scenes of him and. Stephanie practicing for like the big dance, a lot a lot of a net kind of like just being stood up. And then um, yeah, we get the we get that first scene on the on the on the bridge and I know that they they actually didn't tell Donna Pusco that like there was a platform underneath. So when you see her face when she thinks that they've like fallen, that's her actual like reaction
2: to oh, it. That's awful. I hate if that's true. That's awful. Mm -hmm. I disapprove. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. Because
2: I find it. I just but the both the bridge scenes. I oh, I think I think it might be. I think the fine. You know, the final one in particular. Obviously, I think might just be the most disturbing thing in any. I think there's something about the way it sort of emotionally gets you, and then it's just all tragic. But I just find it so devastating and there's something about the fact that they were filming they were really filming up there and it does sound as if the whole process was extremely dangerous
1: yeah it's kind of like the the film you can tell it's like and obviously this film couldn't have been made like any earlier really than it was like because it's all on locations so obviously like the technology before then it would have been a lot of like having to be on sets and stuff like that because the cameras are just so chunky. And, it, yeah, it was only, like, the year before with Rocky that, like, steady cams, like, so they could actually just, like, walk around with the camera and it not be shaking all over the place or have to have, like, big dollies and stuff like that to, uh, to be yeah. able to do stuff. That, like, I don't, I don't know, he's kind of got this weird, like, Low budget gorilla thing to it. It's got the kind of glitter, glitter disco sheen to it. But yeah, it's um. So let's. I don't. This film's littered weirdly with these. I've kind of got a list of like the B plots because you kind of got this thing of like Tony wanting to kind of get out of Brooklyn, but then you kind of got like the whole thing with his brother kind of giving up the the cloth. Is is that the kind of yeah? Turning his back on religion. You've got like the friend hospitalized for getting beaten up. You've obviously got Bobby C, who's got a girl pregnant, and kind of is just asking everyone about it. And kind of like, there's that moment with him and Tony, isn't there? When he's walking down the street and he he just keeps asking him, like, you are you gonna like call me? Are you gonna call me back? Like, please call me back. Like. Call me tonight, like, yeah, to talk about it. And Bobby's also asking, like Tony's brother, who I, d- I don't know what it is. Tony's brother weirdly reminds me of uh the character of Damien Carris from The Exorcist. There's something about oh, those, yeah. those actors look very similar, and I'm not sure if it's just people of kind of like Mediterranean descent, like, uh, <laughs> like yes, uh, yeah. in in. Uh, what is it like in priest outfits? That's that's not the actual term for it, but that's what I'm going to call them. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's um something about that scene where where you have um Bobby C continually trying to ask Tony's brother the question in the club while Tony's sort of doing his thing. That I think kind of when you re. Really this, that whole character of Bobby see, when you re-watch the film, it sort of makes you realize how you as a viewer kind of originally sort of do what his friends do, which is that when you watch it the first time, you're kind of so fixated on John Travolta's performance and his star quality and his charisma that when Bobby falls off the bridge at the end, it kind of takes i mean you know obviously it takes you by surprise but you sort of realize that you kind of were slightly distracted from what he was going through mm-hmm. and then when you watch it again it you kind of notice so many more things about his character like there's something about you sort of it starts to sort of like cast a shadow over the whole film like you you notice his sort of anxious questions much more and and there's a bit where they're in the in the car where tony says Oh, you know the tape the, the music that you're playing is rubbish you need to get new tapes and you, you hear Bobby sort of saying yeah I'll get new tapes I'll get new tapes and there's another scene where he sort of just a, someone has kicked his car and then he ends up sort of apologizing profusely to them and you sort of start to notice his sort of like building anxiety throughout the film much mm-hmm. more when you rewatch it and it's kind of and then yeah and there's that scene where as you say he's sort of saying to him will you call me will you call me and then they have that amazing little shot where you see him walk around the corner and you notice that he's on really high heels, <laughs> um, yep. as a kind of, you know, sort of like, which feels like him sort of just trying to sort of build up his, build up his manhood or whatever it is, you know? And um, yeah, as you say, like, it's not, it runs under two hours, doesn't it? But it's, yeah. it's kind of packed with all of these different, with everyone kind of going through different existential crisis, crises in a way, isn't it?
1: yeah and it's kind of like they've like but i don't know like it's like but let's borrow from this film a bit like do you know what I mean it's kind of like it almost has this like warriors style section where it's like those guys like uh going to like going to beat are they called like the barracudas or something like that like the yeah, the, like the, that. the the gang who would rough, rough up one of their one of their guys and then like it just, even that, it kind of undercuts them to just show like what fucking idiots they are in the, the fact that like they, they they essentially just beat up the wrong people and kind of yeah. like, I don't yeah. know, really, really s- speaks to just them, like, yeah, them I don't know, and there's there's a thing with this film and I guess like, especially w- looking at it through like modern eyes, like this film is littered with kind of uh, homophobic slurs, uh, racist slurs, and stuff like that, which can be like difficult to to watch. And again, to bring it back to like Summer of Sam, a film that was made what, like 20 years later? And, you know, odd, yeah. Like, would have, like, there's that whole thing that, like, that has a very similar gang with. John Leguizamo and his kind of gang thing. It's like, I, like, unfortunately, I, I think that is like there would have been like, especially like Italian Americans who would have like that would have been like the attitude of the time. This very much does feel like, as much as now, it might seem a bit like I don't know, like uneasy on the ear. It, oh it,
2: yeah, of course. I ver- think it didn't. It is intended, but that's the thing. The film yeah. never feels to me as if it's asking you to... Simplify. I mean, the, yeah, exactly, in the dance contest, because they have the thing of them beating up the wrong people and then that goes into the dance contest where sort of, you know, Tony has has the sort of realisation that if you're kind of living in a community that has discrimination at its core, then no one can evaluate themselves mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, kind of like ma- matches up to, to anything that's that feels real and it's a it's a quite the film does feel as if it sort of reaches the climax of ma- of making the point that that yeah discrimination of that kind and abuse of that kind you know is, isn't is something that can make anyone can make anyone happy and isn't a good thing for people to be around
1: so like obviously like that is something i can i can kind of like Stomach with this film it is very much a product of its time, and it's just sh- like, yeah, again, it's not, it's not getting you to sympathise with these characters. I guess, like the point, it kind of like goes beyond um, the point of no return for me. Is like how women are treated in this in this film, especially like in that kind of post dance sequence when we get um when we get Tony and Stephanie in the car, like that's yeah, it like. Even now, like, and I'm not sure. Like, I imagine at the time it would have been the same as well. I don't know. It feels it feels very poorly handled. Like, especially how this film ends as well. Like, I don't.
2: No, it doesn't. There's a there's a thing with this film which is that I think John Baden said that he made a decision to have every scene from Tony's perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh. And you can you can understand that that decision, but then it does make it it harder if you're ever trying to kind of um, explain the 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 effect, you know, the very real effects that something like sexual assault can have on someone. If if everything is done from his perspective and that kind of thing is going on, then there is a danger that people might kind of underplay you Know the, the reality of, of, of how someone might feel in the aftermath of that kind of thing, yeah. So that is, you know, and I mean, it's weird in the 70s because then he went on to do Greece. I don't know what you think, but he went on to do Greece just sort of like a few months after this, and there's a kind of like, I mean, obviously it's you know it's it's done in a more lightweight version but there's a really similar sort of bit in greece when he's at the drive-in with sandy where he tries to force himself on her and she kind of storms out of the car and it's kind of like a strange echo of that scene in in greece it's sort of played even more likely in the sense of like oh well that doesn't make him in any way a bad guy in fact then he kind of sings about being stranded at the drive-in you know yeah always kind of think like it's not a, it's, these things aren't meant to be a normal part of courting you know it's not like and it's not something and if it happens if, if something like this happens to a person it's, it's not something that you should be sort of saying is easy to, to come back from you know well so, I think it's. I like, completely agree that is a really difficult point So it's a
1: very like one two punch of like because it's like so we've just been it's just been established that yeah like he he is essentially trying to rape Stephanie. And then like it's how he then like it if if I don't know, if the film had gone somewhere else to where it goes next, when it's obviously like we see throughout the, the competition, which they lose, Joey has been plying a net with like speed throughout the night yeah. or or some type of drugs. And then like yeah, they they kind of lure her to their beat up car and you get that confrontation between like Tony and, and, and the gang and she, she again she she's she's essentially raped in the back of the car and yeah, Tony just sits there and it's just like I, I don't know like I don't know if I can like I, I buy the ending once it like
2: no I think that that, that dis- I think that the way they filmed that scene i think that everyone was feeling so uncomfortable about it and they had different discussions as to how he was mm-hmm. meant to be handling it but there's something about the moment where she sort of st- you know starts to cry and he's still not interacting with his friends about what's going on that it does it does sort of push you into into another place where you think it's going to be really hard to to finish this film on Tony's perspective, without us being kind of distracted about kind of the aftermath of that. Yeah. What thought- happened to Annette. You know, that's what's hard about making everything from his perspective, but it's because you see what's happening to. I mean, the thing about the way they shoot it is that they do shoot it from her perspective. You can see, you can see her emotional reaction to what's happening. So I appreciate it on that level, in the sense that you're not you're left in no doubt about. Kind of, you know, the trauma that this is going to cause yeah. her. but then the aftermath is Tony, isn't it? Sort of, you know, but, going, yeah. yeah, having a good, good old think, kind of. Thing. <laughs> and you yeah, think I kind of want to know that Annette's okay at this point, you know?
1: Yeah, so. it's it's him, kind of like just looking lost on the subway, whilst like, oh, what's the song that's playing? Is it like it's not how deep? How deep is deep your, is your love. love? Yeah, how deep is your love? Well, kind of like, like just kind of like sitting in train yeah sitting in subway carriages just kind of looking long into the distance and walking down the platform and stuff like that and then he goes to stephanie's apartment in the morning kind of like tries and she even addresses the fact of like that like she says something to the effect of like oh I i don't tend to let like uh sexual predators into or like known rapists into my apartment and it's like so this film is like, is established that that is that is what he essentially did, like tr- or at yeah. least attempted to do. But then, like the the kind of ending is like him just kind of going like, oh, maybe may maybe like, may, uh, I don't know. It kind of has that thing where it it tries to be like he's learned a lesson, but it's like, what lesson has he learned? It's like. He's learned he he wants to move to Manhattan, and it's kind of like it's like I, I don't I don't think I've I side with you here, like Tony. It's kind of like yeah, it's like you say, like you kind of want that closure. So what happened with with Annette or, or like okay. do you know what I mean? or it's like I, I I don't know. It's 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 kind of it's a it's difficult pill to swallow. Even that kind of like interaction of like him and him and stephanie kind of making up and vowing to become friends it's like the 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 guy has already proved that like he kind of befriend like tried to bef- yeah like get into her orbit under the pretense of like let's be dance partners but then like kind of at any given opportunity he's like try trying the moves and like do you know what I mean he's just full of rage when like she won't let him walk her home and stuff like that, and it's like i, I yeah i, I just yeah. i just find i just find that last ten minutes kind of i don't know it's, it's it's just a bit too bleak,
2: yes, yes, completely, i mean I think that the thing that's in- interesting about this though is that when when you know that when you know that most that most instances of of sexual assault happen between people that already know each other mm-hmm. you sort of do you sort of think well i suppose a film like this is sort of is putting you up against that where you're where you're presented with characters that you get to know and then you'll then you're let in on knowing what you know has gone on in these kind of like dark corners of their life and then you have to just sit with that Mm. and I think that that is a really really uncomfortable feeling but on there is an aspect to it where I kind of think it's it's useful to reflect on some of those things sometimes that makes
1: sense yeah 100% and it's I, I guess it is, yeah. It's not the fact I mentioned in saying it's a bit too bleak. It's it's not even the fact. It's, it's just the way that obviously, that the ending is presented. That we're supposed. To, it's almost like got a kind of like haze to it that we're supposed to be like, ah, oh, and that and do you know what I mean? Like a postscript would come up and then be like, yes. And, and
2: Stephanie, don't you think she kind of looks like a? The last shot looks a little bit kind of like you, um, a sort of biblical mm. illustration stained glass window or something Mm -hmm. they put her in a dressing gown she kind of looks like a madonna or an angel or something doesn't she and sort of bowing down over him kind of you know taking care of him and and you think you know we've seen him several times in this film react incredibly sort of jealously to to quite minimal things and i don't know if if these two people it's a lovely idea that he could just suddenly turn into someone that's able to just be friends with someone that he's attracted to but from what I've seen in this film, I don't know if he's going to be able to to
1: do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just. I, I guess it's a very it's a very difficult one, and I, 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 I don't think I don't think it is all the aspect of like just looking at it from like a a, a woke twenty twenty one perspective or anything like that. Like I would imagine, like the things it presents and the kind of way it's presented. Would have would have been slightly problematic at the time. I, yeah, completely. I, I can yeah. imagine, like, like that. There's 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 other films of that time that kind of like I don't know at least address stuff in a better way. And and I guess there is like there is a very I don't, there's a very poor handling. There's again, I keep making a weird comparison to Rocky, but like. There's that kind of scene between Rocky and Adrian that, like, is 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 a bit bizarre when they first like kiss, and it's kind of like, like I don't know. The I I and and my my view on that is I just think it's like it's a poorly handled scene as opposed to being actually problematic. Whereas this, yeah. film I, I definitely feel like that stuff. Is prob is problematic. Like it's handled in a problematic way, yeah. it, And it, their choices that have been made, whether it's in the script or choices, whether it's shots and stuff that they've chose to linger on, or 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 just not include at all. Whereas, yeah, I just i i i can't get past it. I just can't like because it very much feels I i kind of beating this drum. To death but feels like we're supposed to root for tony at the end and I'm
2: no like... no i i and i think actually um oddly enough his john travolta's charm mm. is I, is 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 also sort of contributing to that feeling of discomfort that you get at the end of the film because you you recognize in yourself that you have in some ways found him quite a compelling protagonist and that you you know that you have that there's a part of you that has kind of let him in Mm. and so there's something about watching someone that you feel that you feel by the end of the film kind of as if you sort of have got to know and has kind of charmed you and then seeing them behave so coldly or so brutally that that I think maybe leaves you feeling kind of it probably leaves it that's the thing it probably echoes the whole theme of the film where you start to have a bit of an existential crisis because you kind of think i've i've been i'm on this journey with this hero and look at how terrible terribly he, he behaves and yet you know i watched him dance to you should be dancing and i thought it was like one of the greatest things i've ever seen you know so you're, you're kind of yeah definitely you with that contradiction in yourself yeah. which is a really uncomfortable feeling yeah
1: yeah it's a film that definitely leaves you kind of asking yourself questions about about well just bigger things just like kind of and it yeah and it is that thing that like Travolta kind of does have that like charisma and charm and to, to kind of link it back to something I said at the beginning like if if it were like somebody I don't know not somebody who's like kind of known out and out for playing these darker roles and at this point as well like Travolta plays like a bit of a dick in um well he plays a a dick in Carrie as well but like I know that in uh the in in America at the time he was what on like a hit sitcom kind of very is it like Welcome Back Carter or something like that and he was like he was like I guess this would have been like the, the thing that would have been comparable it's like bruce willis in die hard at the time do you know what I mean like he's kind of this what? guy who's who's known for this kind of lovable character on tv and i know yeah and and then he's playing like this slight well yeah nearly well no this unredeemable character i kind of skirted around that but he's like uh yeah if not if not unredeemable at least very close to being so character but i know that that is something That Travolta like wanted to do as an actor, and what kind of like drew him to the part, and was the reason that John G. Avildsen left the project because Travolta kind of was quite a big name at the time, like or at least had a bit of cachet. That he was like, well, I'm not doing it unless we kind of keep the rough edges on on the film. I just, I just think like. Not that the rough edges should have been sanded off this film. I just think that, like, there needed to be some counterpoints to those rough edges.
2: Yes, yes, I, I totally get what you mean. I mean, yeah. I think that his decision might have, um, in, in, like, more generally in terms of the tone of the film, considering that Grease came off the back of it, it probably mm-hmm. was the two of them. It's funny, I think maybe that's what happened as well, was that people lumped in Saturday Night Fever with Greece. And so when people see the two of them, they're kind of expecting Saturday Night Fever to be a kind of companion piece to Greece when it's just such a completely different film. Yeah. And then he became so I th- I mean I think that because all of the songs kind of filled up the charts in the following year and then Greece came out, I think that John Travolta sort of suffered this this um overexposure. Mm-hmm. Certainly over here, like I remember watching, I watched the old um, Top of the Pops reruns on BBC4 on a Friday night and there's quite a famous performance from the Boomtown Rats where Bob Geldof opens his performance by ripping up a picture of um, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, you know, and while amazing. performing <laughs> theatrically, yeah, as a kind of way of. Make, make way for the new kids, we've had enough of them, you know, and you think, like, the fact that that was such a big moment on Top of the Pops indicates how how much of a success story he'd become so quickly just in the space of a couple of years, you know. Yeah. And, um, but I think that if he hadn't have done this film, you he, he wouldn't, because didn't you were saying that he would only do this film because of some of the darker aspects yeah. of it, but then I think that he had to be persuaded, didn't he, to do Pulp Fiction because he thought that that was too
1: yeah but obviously there's like a big like um there's a big gap isn't there so like during the he had kind of started to become a bit more of like a a a, fa- a family film man with like pulp picture would have been post look who's talking look who's talking now perhaps yeah trying to, yeah I'm trying to think of the timeline of this i haven't got trailers, imdb up at the moment but like yeah, it's it's a kind of weird one, and and there's a very like, it's very sad as well. Like in Travolta's personal life, like his personal life at the moment. Like obviously he, he'd just lost his girl, like he'd lost his girlfriend, whilst they yeah, were, I think it happened yeah, during the filming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, I don't like, I I, I, I can only imagine what that would have been. Like I'm not even sure if I can, like the like
2: it would have, no it's, it's horrible like, completely in it and it once you know that, you sort of it sort of feeds into some some of the things that are coming across in the film, like I think I read that um Karen Lynn Gourney said that that kiss that she gives him on the cheek when they're looking at the bridge in that scene was actually improvised from her because he was looking really tearful. Yeah, and it was just in the aftermath of that and that she could see that he was just suffering incredibly so she leaned over and, and gave him a kiss you know and when, and when, once you sort of understand that and understand sort of what he's going through through the, the course of the film you do think it probably does all of that sadness that you see across his face on a lot of the scenes and that sort of raw vulnerability probably is coming from quite a real place.
1: Well yeah pe- pe- people said at the time like they can't they, they couldn't imagine what he was going through because he would like finish a day's shooting and then would basically like be up all night crying he was just so upset like but then managed to just like pull it together to film these to, to film scenes and stuff like that and it's just like w- wow do you know what I, mean? well, like, I know and...
2: it's incredible isn't it like i i read um an account i think that Andy Warhol had written in one of his diaries or something about how he'd been on a, on a plane, the same plane as John Travolta. And he just kept noticing that John Travolta sort of kept going into the loo and coming back and looking sort of, you know, was his eyes sort of filled with tears and he didn't know what was going on with him. And then it was only afterwards that he read that his partner had died, you know, so obviously he was, he was coming back from, from being with her. And, and yeah, it's just, it's like the professionalism that, mm-hmm. you know, people. People have to kind of exert on in in these kind of situations is is extraordinary really and there's something about the the kind of um the way in which he he throws himself into this role you know and kind of the way he executes it with that all kind of going on in the background is yeah it's a really remarkable thing
1: yeah well is there anything in the film that we've missed is there any of your favorite scenes that we haven't or points that we haven't talked about
2: I think I think we've we've pretty much we've gone over a lot of it haven't we I mean it's it's just so it's so filled with with incredible things and um oh yeah and David David Shire who we're who we're talking <laughs> about yeah his um that that was that was something he does a uh piece of music in it called Manhattan Skyline and you hear it in one of the one of the rehearsal scenes and that song was originally going to be a song called lowdown by boz skaggs and then at the last minute it got he didn't want to give permission to them to use it so they used manhattan skyline instead and then that got used on as the opening music to the american football games and apparently david shire sort of really made a, <laughs> a lot of money as a result of that so, <laughs> so but i do think it's a really manhattan skyline is a really great i mean it's the soundtrack In general is just extraordinary and I do think that that's like a a lovely a lovely part of it it really reminds me of the Charlie's Angels theme Mm -hmm. tune it's got that real kind of 70s sort of New York you can imagine kind of people sort of looking out at the the New York sunshine and grabbing a coffee and going out you know it's got that kind of that kind of sort of exhilarating feeling to it yeah yeah so So he did a good job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So, yeah, we've obviously just mentioned David Shire there. So let's talk about some Coppola connections. Could you find any weird and wonderful connections between this film and the Coppola family?
2: I could. So Tony's mother is played by Julie Bavasso and she's aunt in Moonstruck. And obviously Moonstruck has Nicolas Cage.
1: At the um, Central, which you would know a lot about <laughs> <laughs> amazing uh I'll, I'll give you one of mine before it, uh, before you give another one uh obviously this film uh is starring john travolta who also starred in face off with Nicolas cage that's a nice that's a nice easy one uh have yes. you got any more katrin
2: i've got some more tenuous ones i don't know whether you want to Let's go tenuous. Yes, please. Okay. So John Travolta made Michael, which was written and directed by Nora Ephron. And she's the real life partner of Carl Bernstein, which the film All the President's Men was made about. And that was scored by David Shire.
1: Amazing. Uh, Here's here's another, here's a tenuous one. Uh, The sequel to Saturday Night Fever, Staying Alive, was directed by Sylvester Stallone, who starred alongside David Shire's wife at the time, Talia Shire.
2: Oh, that's a very good one.
1: Uh, <laughs>
2: I've got another one as well. This is also tenuous. <laughs> um, Barry Miller, who plays Bobby C., he made then went and made Fame with Alan Parker, who worked with Madonna on Evita, who made Dick Tracy with Al Pacino, who was in The Godfather.
1: Amazing. Well, Alan Parker also directed Birdie? with uh nicholas cage and matthew modine in it oh Um, there you go that's
2: a better one isn't it (laughs) um,
1: barry barry miller is also in uh francis ford coppola's uh, peggy sue got married alongside uh, nicholas cage oh there
2: you go i think he's very good
1: (laughs) yeah barry miller i I know that a lot of the other um actors of his gang were kind of first timers and uh, a couple of them haven't really done much else. I know one of them is more of like a a voice actor now, but um, yeah. Ba- ba- Barry Miller's kind of like I think he was an actor before and has gone on to do some great stuff. Well, let's get on to my very arbitrary and kind of uh, yeah, uh, pointless scoring system, but all fun all to uh, nonetheless. Is what would be your perfect wine pairing for this film?
2: So I'm going to go with a cocktail, Lovely. which is uh, a seven and seven, which is what Tony Monero orders when he first enters the club, and that's a mixture of whiskey and Seven Up.
1: Great, great, yeah. Uh, yeah that uh, that I I think my mine is. Uh, a bit more uh that 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 that's perfect cause that is the trick that is in this uh f- uh film M- mine however, speaks more to how this film slightly makes you feel and it, uh, Ooh, yeah okay, go I go, it. go go with me on this this film yeah. be uh communion wine spiked with speed in that it kind of it, there's an impression of this film that is very much wholesome for the family for everyone to enjoy but then there is very much a spiky undertow and obviously tony's gang do a lot of speed
2: that's wonderful <laughs> an incredible description uh,
1: <laughs> amazing so how much are you paying for this 7 and 7 uh is 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 this is this low rent or is this a, a, a high-priced drink? Are you going for a, um, an expensive whiskey in this?
2: Yeah, I pay. I, I, I. I think the last the last time I went to a cocktail, bar, I think it was before you know the the year that we've just had, and <laughs> I like their most expensive. I think mean, that was in the northern Quarter, I think it was Cane Grain and their most expensive cocktails. I think were about a tenner. So I'd go for that, but I might try and turn up at happy hour.
1: Lovely, lovely. <laughs> uh, um, amazing. And would you recommend people watch Saturday Night Fever if they haven't already?
2: I would absolutely recommend it, but you need to make sure that you're in the right frame of mind mm-hmm. if there is such a thing. But um, yeah, don't watch it on a date. Yeah, it's it's
1: kind of a weird one. You wouldn't think it. But it very much can be filed under the same category as a film uh, like Requiem for a Dream, where it's like, it's, it's, it's got a lot going for it, but you don't really want to watch it all the time.
2: No, no, <laughs> I, I, kind of think of it, I kind of think of it as a, like a tragic opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that I... It's that kind of, you can, you know, you understand that it's an incredibly sort of significant piece of art, but it's unbelievably intense. And you can't, you know, you can't stick it on every single day. It, it's odd, actually, because I think that the the kind of exhilarating parts of it have influenced some of some really feel good films that I watch a lot. Like, I think it influenced Swingers quite a lot. Do you know the film Swingers? Yeah, you know,
1: yeah,
2: the, yeah, like there's a, you know, there's there's lots of little bits in Swingers. where I think, oh, that's just a, you know, sort of like nod to something I feel Like, like there's a bit where they're in the diner and Vince Vaughn is sort of jumping on the seats and just almost like a recreation of the bit in the diner and Saturday night fever. and also just things like um, the commitments or strictly ballroom or whatever, you know, loads of kind of quite sort of generally feel good films, they might have gritty aspects, but they sort of like leave you on quite a high, I think being quite influenced by this. So it's quite a strange one in that way, isn't it? It's so, it's so dark, but, but people have taken things out of it that to make films that people might watch every yeah. day. Make themselves feel good,
1: you know. Well, it's very much got an aspect of being like uh, an early like hangout movie. Like, do you know what I mean? And the thing of like, yeah. it's not so much like, like, do you know what I mean? It's got a very loose plot of like them uh, entering the competition. But then, even that kind of starts to like drift off into the background as more and more things get. um like, brought into it. And yes, like, completely. I, you, yeah, you can even see, like, a kind of lineage between Saturday Night Fever and something like Fa- Fast Times at Ridgemont High or even, like, Dazed and Confused, where it's this kind of, like, do you know what I mean? People just going about and kind of dropping in on these different aspects of people. But, obviously, this film is just... Yeah, it was made in the 70s, so it kind of has to have, like, a, a bleakness to it that the 70s... Seems to just exude all the time. Do you know what I mean to bring it back to Rocky oh, once more? So it's yeah. it's it's a kind of like uplifting underdog story where the underdog loses at the end yeah. of the film. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so um, this... and
2: I can completely see why Travolta wanted him for like really persuaded him hard to do Pulp Fiction because there are bits in Pulp you I mean, as well as the dancing scene, which is obviously yes. but but as you say that that thing of kind of dropping in on different people di- who are going through sort of different things all of which are kind of equally grim there are aspects of that in Pulp fiction aren't there as well really? so you can really why he was like you you've got to play this role i've got <laughs> this is vital so. Yeah.
1: so let's move on to again a question that is probably close to unanswerable but uh, which couple of family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the filmography of every other family member.
2: Well, I know that you're going to be you're going to be very cross about this, but I'm going to keep David Shire because I want to keep Saturday Night Fever.
1: No, I'm not cross at all. <laughs> not, I like I, I come on with uh, no judgment. I know a lot of people <laughs> expect me to just want them to say Nicolas Cage all the time.
2: I uh, know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> like. Yeah.
1: I'm not like a devotee of like I'm I, I'm more of like a kind of social scientist looking at a fascinating actor as opposed to uh, a card carrying flag waving Nicolas Cage like can do no wrong fan. Yeah, yes.
2: Yeah. No, I I understand the distinction, and it's just also this film because um, I'm a I'm I'm a, I'm a sort of a pop music fanatic, mm-hmm. and. If you take away Saturday Night Fever, you take away sort of one of the the sound. If you if you get rid of the soundtrack, you you take away a, a really kind of vital cog in the pop music canon. Mm. And I need it to be there. I need it to remain forever. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, I, I guess yeah. you kind of really just get rid of how like needle drops are used in films as well and kind yeah think, completely this would have probably been the first instance of the soundtrack being just as big or even bigger than the film itself like with the, this kind of and, and now that's kind of commonplace right like a lot of the times, yes. like. So you look at you look at something like Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't think you've got a soundtrack like that if you don't have um Saturday Night Fever to kind of pave the way for, for doing that.
2: No, I think I think that's I think that's really right.
1: Perfect.
2: So are the Coppolas
1: the greatest film family of all time, Catherine?
2: Well, because we're talking about Saturday Night Fever, mm-hmm. I'm gonna make a case for the Gibb brothers being the greatest film family of all time.
1: I okay okay that is uh that 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 that's perfectly fine. Uh, I do believe that you're you're wrong but from hearing <laughs> your uh, he, 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 hearing obviously being a
2: uh, well the thing is <laughs> in, we were talking about, we were talking about Greece and the the title track from Greece which is the best song in Greece I think is also a Gib brothers track yeah. and then they like wrote things like how do you mend a broken heart which is in Loads of different films, um, like possibly like really famously used in, right in the middle of Notting Hill, where they play the Al Green version of it in its entirety, and yeah, and it fit, their their music has touched so many different artists and different films, and it's just sort of like sprawling all over the place. And also, they didn't get nominated for an Academy Award for the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which I'm. I continue to be angry about. So on yeah. that on that basis, I would also like to nominate them. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: that, that's perfect. That's great. That's uh, you're the you're the first person so far who who hasn't who hasn't agreed that, that the couplers are. I, I, I guess it's kind of almost slightly a redundant question because it's like, how many other families have, like, so many legs in the? In- yeah, it's very difficult.
2: <laughs> it's very difficult to contend with them. Even if you're like going into Jamie Lee Curtis's family or anything, it's still quite hard to, you know, compete with a couple I think. Really, isn't
1: it? Yeah. yeah. They, they've kind of, they've very much like gone, we got something for everyone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we've, yeah. we've, got, we've got Wes Anderson movies and we've got straight to DVD, Nick Cage movies, all in the same family. So it's like, take a pick, like, take a pick what you want.
2: No, no, completely, completely. No, they, they are incredible. They are incredible. Well, before
1: I let you go, Catherine, I must ask you, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation?
2: Okay, this is what I think he says. Mm-hmm. He says, they're about to play the Jesus and Mary chain, even though I asked for Shawadi Wadi." In the edit, <laughs> when they ask you which you prefer, say Shawadi Wadi.
1: <laughs> perfect perfect uh,
2: okay. i'm pretty convinced of that so <laughs>
1: that's possibly one like yeah i i i love asking this question because people just uh give give such great and fun answers uh,
2: <laughs> i can't yeah. wait to find out what the other people have said yeah also, yeah
1: <laughs> like the i guess i guess the kind of I don't know what the end goal is. I guess the end goal is to uh, try and ask Sophia Coppola herself what. Yes. What do they say? Or, or is it a case of like, well, we didn't, we just didn't have an ending. We just thought we'd leave it ambiguous, and then we'll have people guessing for for years and years to come. No,
2: well, it's a good
1: wheeze, isn't
2: it? Well, <laughs> yeah. um, people have tried to lip read him, haven't they? I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd like I I I I would imagine so. I guess there's there's definitely the I know there's kind of a famous quote, I think it was um Mark Commode said that like he says to her, like, come with me because I've just signed the deal to do Garfield and I'm gonna be minted. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, perfect. Well um Catherine, thank you so much for, for yeah, for slipping on your dancing shoes and coming and joining some of the dots and making some couple of connections with me. Um, if people want to uh, yeah, follow you on social media or anything like that, or if, do you have anything to plug on the podcast? Uh, do so now. Um,
2: yeah, I'm Katrin Lowe at Kitty Costanza on Twitter and on Instagram. And I'm about to record a episode of Betamax with um betamax club with rich rich, rich yeah, with rich nelson which you had um on the other day i think didn't you talking about the conversation
1: yeah so rich came on for the first episode of this journey shaking the branches of the couple of family trees so yeah, if you haven't and listened-
2: yeah I'm
1: sorry. no I was just gonna say go back and listen to that guys
2: <laughs> and we're about to We're about to record an episode on Purple Rain, which I think is a film that's incredibly influenced by Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. So if people have enjoyed this episode, um, then they might enjoy listening to that too. Perfect.
1: Well, yeah, thank you so much again for coming and chatting with me.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, Petros.
1: Thank you very much, guys, for hitting the tech with myself and Katrin. If you feel like we missed anything or we got anything wrong, please don't hesitate to get in touch, which you can do on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at CagedInPod. Or you can reach us via email, which is CagedInPod at gmail.com. Just a heads up that the Prince Charles Cinema have tickets on sale for Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now on a beautiful 35mm print in its original theatrical cut. Obviously, I'm not telling you to rush out and go see it if you don't feel comfortable with everything that's been going on. I totally understand. You just want to sit at home and watch a beautiful Blu-ray of it. But if you want to, the option is very much there. As for next week's episode, I'll be joined by the lovely Jeanette Baer from the fantastic Sudden Double Deep podcast to talk about our first double Coppola Connection film. Co-written by Roman Coppola with an appearance from the one and only Jason Schwartzman It is, of course Wes Anderson's 2012 Moonrise Kingdom. If you haven't already, make sure you check out breadcrumbscollective.com where you can check out a whole bunch of other great podcasts all under the breadcrumbs collective banner and if you enjoyed this podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review on acast apple podcast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now i've been petrus Patzilovis, your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree so remember to keep it coppola and i'll catch you next time
2: hi
0: Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast. Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery Main, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs.
2: It's more than a podcast network. It's family.